Welcome to Tech Live. Stephanie Christopher here, CEO of the Executive Connection. We connect leaders with a trusted network of people who help them succeed. Without giving away who the guest is, this is a carryover champion, but um, Steph, it's going to be a really different conversation this week. It's going to be a really interesting conversation this week and I can guarantee it because it is my favourite all-time podcast guest, <laughs> Stephen Rutter. So let me tell you about Stephen. He is the founder of an amazing company called the Scale Institute. It's an innovation consultancy that has done so much for various businesses, clients, educational organisations across Australia, large corporates and SMEs. But today we're going to focus the conversation on Stephen and his own story, his journey to realising his Aboriginal heritage and who he is today, a proud Tebracana man from Lutrawitta in Tasmania. Stephen Rutter, welcome to Tech Live. Thank you, Steph. So good to see you. In your Scale Institute hoodie, one thing you do very good merch. Do, do we have a camera here? Because, you know, that that's where I try to sell my brand we we will get uh we will definitely get a camera and with your dresden glasses matching your hoodie you've got the look definitely so Stephen, um you've been on tech live right at the beginning you were one of our first guests talking about innovation design thinking agility radical candor it was a good conversation but today i really want to talk about the story you told me maybe 12 months ago and it was about a fundamental change in your life. So why don't you start at the beginning and tell your story? Yeah, sure. So I, th- I think i got to get back to about 1987 when my auntie took her two-day-old or three-day-old into hospital in Canberra and uh, got told it was croup, mm-hmm. took him home, and he died overnight. Oh. So uh, my mum got my auntie out of bed and took her down to the library and wanted to map our family tree. Mm-hmm. And my mother and my auntie found out our extensive family history that absolutely uh, took us way back to the early 1800s in Tasmania or at the time was called Lutrawita. And did they have any idea of this history? Not at all. Wow. Not at all. They were quite. They were quite. I guess ambivalent to their past. They mm. knew that there was convict heritage, mm-hmm. and uh, that's all we were told as kids that we were, you know, good old convict stock. Mm, I would have picked that straight away with you, Stephen. <laughs> Thank you. Must have been all those pens and uh, uh, yeah. pads I stole from the Executive Connection totally, office. Totally, totally. So then, what happened? So. Um, They went on the journey and uh, actually found out that uh, a farmer that was in Tasmania uh, married the granddaughter of an Indigenous elder and um, he was actually the chief of Tebrokana country, which is right at the tip, so the northeast corner of Tasmania, looking out to the Bass Strait Islands. Right. North east corner, so uh, what's that, Launceston, but much further over. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I, I actually went on to country a couple of months ago and it's about two hours' drive from Launceston. So 
Paint the picture then about the granddaughter, so your great, great. About six times great. Mm-hmm. So she was she was born to um, Dolly Dalrymple and Dolly Dalrymple was sold off to um, the seal fisherman at the time and uh, Jane, her daughter, got sent to Launceston to live with her doctor's family, mm-hmm. which was great. She got an education. She got to read and write. However, then Jane was, again, um, outcast from that family because of a somewhat suspicious, illegitimate child. Mm-hmm. And we're not sure if it's a doctor's or not, but right. that might be a folk tale. Basically, uh, at that stage, uh, Jane and Thomas, one of my relatives, got married mm-hmm. and uh, started a, a hobby farm. Mm-hmm. So I think... Uh, and so Thomas would have been a white farmer, wasn't he? Absolutely. It? Yeah. Yep. He was He was the son of mm-hmm. the convict that first right. came out. Yeah, right. This is a pretty amazing story to come across. What did that mean for your mum and your auntie? My grandmother was still alive mm-hmm. and uh, she didn't want to tell anyone. And her sisters, so they were, had four sisters, didn't want any of the family to know. Mm-hmm. So I was quite um, suppressed mm-hmm. for about 15 years until my mo- uh, grandmother passed away. Mm-hmm. And then um, along the same lines, my Grandfather, so my grandmother's husband, yeah. um, they were tracking a 40-year journey of their family tree as well that also had uh, Indigenous origins. So what, on both sides? On both sides. Wow. So that, that was quite special. But I, I think um, it's really only been in the last 10 years that I've been able to research a lot more into it, spend a lot more time down in far northeast Tasmania and getting an understanding of how great my family is. Mm. And I think I'll reflect on five years ago I went down to the Tasmanian Art and Cultural Museum in Hobart and we got there right on nine o'clock because we had a reservation at a nice restaurant a couple Mm. of hours out of Hobart for lunch and then flying out that day and we got there the older gentleman said uh what are you here to see and uh Rathio um my loving partner blurted out we're here to to see Manala Jenna so the chief and he said well you've come to the right place he's everywhere First of all, go to the third floor and we go up in the elevator and you open the doors and a big mural of his sits. Mm -hmm. And subsequent to that, there's six other, maybe four foot by six foot, six foot paintings of Mana Lagena Mm -hmm. everywhere. He was was a provocateur and I've told you about me before and how I like to uh, help individuals and organisations think differently. But he was engaged by the Tasmanian government to form the Black Line in uh, 
So was he just interrupting? He was the chief of the whole area that is now Tasmania? No, just just of Tebrokana. But he was, but this museum in Hobart obviously is the museum for the whole of the state. That's exactly God, right. Sorry, I was That's just exactly getting my right. countries. Tell me about the Black Line. Over 18 months, it was, um, the budget was half of the Tasmanian overall budget mm. to form this line mm. to basically corral and, and relocate every Indigenous man, woman, child and relocate them to the Bass Islands, Bass right. Strait Islands, right. Flinders Island. And there. when are we talking here, 1800s? Uh, 18, 1830s. Yeah. Um, and it was 1832, he was employed for a couple of years and over the course of his supervision they found one man and one boy. Right. So he basically kept taking uh, Augustus Robinson, who was a lieutenant general mm-hmm. down there at the time in circles, Right. kept asking via smoke signals and messages for um, the locals to keep moving. Keep moving. And... That that lasted a good couple of years. So he he was found out. He just went back to the Lieutenant General and said, would you like me to tell your superiors what you do? Mm. And uh, anyway, they didn't like that. So they shipped him off and he died three months later on Flinders Island. What an amazing story. Mm. And Jane was his granddaughter. Yeah, that's right. Tasmania was terrible. Mm. It was, it was terrible. And terrible things done all around this country, but Tasmania was particularly brutal, wasn't it? Yeah, and I, I think that's due to its island state. Yeah, I mean, they just can't keep running. Mm. Mm. And so, what did this mean for you? So you've said, you know, five years ago you were at that museum. This has unfolded for you, hasn't it, into becoming deeply part of your psyche? Yeah, I, th- I think it's 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 down to purpose. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a very white family, yeah. very, you know, my father was a small business owner, so didn't have any holidays. He worked really hard, but he got rewarded for that. Mm. So, yeah, I'm privileged. Mm. But that's so so... The journey I'm on now is to give every opportunity I can mm. to not not just um, First Nations peoples, but mm. everyone. Mm. Well, you have inherited provocateur through all those lines, <laughs> through that history. There's no question about that. And you are driven to help small and mid-sized businesses. So tell us about, First Nations businesses, particularly small businesses in Australia, what's the status or the state? So I registered the Scale Institute Mm -hmm. as an Indigenous corporation last year and I got my ICN. Oh, yeah, that's right. I was going to ask you about that. Tell us about that. So it's an Indigenous credit number. Mm -hmm. So think ABN. Mm -hmm. And my number was 9658. 
Right. So if you can think of your ABN, yeah, yeah, it's a lot. There's a lot more numbers, right? Mm. So on paper, less than ten thousand mm. businesses that identify as fifty-one percent or more Indigenous, which means we're sitting well below equity of three percent mm-hmm. to allow for an equal seat at the table. So I did the maths and it's 80,000 businesses that we need to get a fair representation for the voices, the culture, the purpose and and the sustainability of our people. So I there was in COVID a lot of grants given from the um, state and federal governments to reinvigorate communities mm-hmm. and I put together a proposal mm-hmm. for a First Nations Business Academy yeah, which wasn't successful. Mm-hmm. They wanted a shiny toy, yeah. Mm. They wanted these um, ideas of out of the bush that, that sort of they could put on a pedestal, typical mm. innovation theatre and I um, – What I wanted to do was to create a steady flow of Indigenous entrepreneurial thinkers. Mm. I don't teach entrepreneurship. Mm. I don't teach innovation. I help people to think differently and act entrepreneurial. Mm. So we were identifying that in the last five years we've done a great job. We've got reconciliation action plans, which people are now moving away from. We've got Indigenous procurement policies. We've got enough demand. Mm -hmm. We just don't have the supply. So where I come from, from the entrepreneurial ecosystem and even with my own early stage venture, Utopia, we're fighting for product market fit. We're fighting for those customers. Yeah. Whereas Indigenous businesses already have a great unfair advantage. We just don't have the supply. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? So the the network, the network effect exists, which a- is how absolutely. any startup can really scale. Absolutely. Are those less than 10,000 businesses leveraging that network and doing very well? No, I think there's some cultural nuances at play here. Mm. We were still very fragmented in our own nations Mm. and countries and collaboration could be seen as business across the board. You know, do we collaborate well with our friends and foes? Do we take an open innovation approach Mm. and know that one plus one equals five? Mm. No. No. We still don't do that in business across the board. So I think we need to herald successes a lot more. And this goes to entrepreneurship across the board, right? Mm. We're still knocking Elon Musk off his perch because of his idiosyncrasy. And I think we we need to applaud people taking risk and we need to also then create the safe environments for people 
to fail. So as a step one then to find a way that all businesses can celebrate these stories of First Nations businesses, entrepreneurs that are making a difference? I think step one is to collaborate. Mm -hmm. I think step one is to not think of ourselves as First Nations businesses or Western businesses or Australian businesses, that we're just here and we need to join forces to actually maintain and move to the next horizon of growth because of the whole disruption happening around us. Absolutely. So what would that collaboration specifically look like then as a first step? What could it look like? I, th- I think in, a, in its purest form, it's sharing ideas, mm. sitting down, getting back to storytelling, yarning, getting back to just an ability to know that we have very similar challenges in business. You know this all too well. Whatever kind of business you're in and whatever your family background is. And your business, Stephanie, is is, is built around mm. that knowledge sharing. Mm. So how might we actually just look at an Indigenous business that, that might have an average revenue ex- of $800,000 mm. and go to an equivalent SME that averages $1.5 million mm. and just ask them how and why. It's really interesting. My mind's racing actually about what we could all do in business so you're talking about collaboration. There's a step before that, though, because people have to actually know each other to collaborate. Yeah, that's right. So there has to be some connection first. Yeah, so I've been working with some education providers such as Enactus Australia mm-hmm. and also some schools have, have bought into this as well. Enactus Australia just focus on social innovation projects that are student-led in the tertiary system. Yeah. And they asked me to um, develop a module of collaborating with First Nations people. Mm. And I had a brief, no more than two and a half hours. Yeah. So I did four modules and I started with the cultural bias, Mm. the awareness and what you may think and what you don't think. Then I moved into storytelling, Indigenous entrepreneurship, and the last was communicating for impact. Mm. So I I really looked at that four-pronged approach. And you know me, it starts with the user, Mm. starts with the empathy. Mm. So before... And who was your user for this? Oh, uh, the First Nations people. Oh, it was for First Nations. It was for the university students wanting to work with communities. Yeah, that's right. That's what I was trying to think. Who was the persona of your that's of right. course? Because, I mean, those four areas, that's kind of getting back to where we can all start as businesses. So say the four modules again because they're really good. So cultural bias. I love that, yeah. Okay. Storytelling. Yep. 
indigenous entrepreneurship. Yep. So different. Yep. To entrepreneurship as a discipline. Yep. And the fourth is communicating with impact. Okay, let's touch on some of those because I think this is really getting into it. Tell me about cultural bias. What are the cultural biases, biases, plural, that I'm sitting here holding that I need to be aware of? That someone won't stick around if you employ them or if you contract them to do some work for you. Right. Because we take a lens that we're hunters and gatherers and we're nomadic people. Mm. So we're going to go walk about. Mm. Now, if you take um, Dark Emu, for example, if you've read Dark Emu, if no, you I haven't, haven't, go read it yeah. and you see that that First Nations people built cities. Mm, that's interesting. So that bias, I don't think I hold that bias actually. And in the Great Resignation, I, you know, I probably do hold it <laughs> about employees under a certain age. Mm. And it doesn't bother me because mm. that's the world that I live in right now. Mm. So that's interesting, that challenging of that one. I want to know the difference that you see between Aboriginal entrepreneurship and Western entrepreneurship. Mm. Mm. I think it's about collectiveness. Mm-hmm. So Indigenous entrepreneurship is all about talking through the problem with others right. first. Whereas we, you know, the entrepreneurship that I first learnt about at my time at UTS and I developed an MBA in entrepreneurship Mm. was all about, well, we need to keep it close to our chest. We need to have it for our own personal gratification. Mm. Even though we might be solving a big problem Mm. that the market has identified mm. it's, it's still a singular ownership mm. whereas indigenous entrepreneurship is about community, community ownership yeah that's really interesting and then tell me finally about communicating with impact what's the the key messages there i think it's asking the right questions mm. you know yourself as a world-class podcast interviewer <laughs> Um, it's 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 about just unlocking the hidden truth. Yeah. Because we all have our facade. We always have a hard time looking at ourselves mm. in a self-reflective way. So I, f- I feel you need to do all the previous steps and really understand your user group to then unlock and ask the right questions because that that will drop down the opportunity. You have come from two worlds and one world you assumed you were from and then there's been this whole other mm. colour added to who you are. And when I'm listening to you talking about those two worlds as far as entrepreneurship goes and disruption and innovation, they actually merge beautifully. And I think that's a message for business here mm. that that there's been this whole school of entrepreneurship and this is how you do it. Start with the user. 
but actually you're bringing in a, a very powerful next level of context and content that can make a huge difference for entrepreneurs trying to be successful. Yeah, I think uh, it really is down to mentorship, mm. to be honest. And when I created this business academy that is yet to take off the ground, so if mm. any of your listeners do want to <laughs> put some seed funding into it, they can uh, reach out to me. But it's more about I really wanted to focus on how the idea stays within the community. Mm. So, again, the way I've built innovation ecosystems in the past is to have these entrepreneurs in residence. Mm. You know, the types mm. of people that are, you know, the Ben Groziers that yeah. are just wonderful. Yeah. Because they come from a world of experience. The tech chairs, mm. they come from a world of experience and deliver not the answers, mm. but just some sage advice. And I really wanted to bring in the cultural element. So mm. I, I've brought in these elders in residence mm. that, again, are not there to provide the business acumen or the components of a business model, but they're just to make sure that not only does that First Nations entrepreneur stay within community but he's on the right lane. I think I know you're onto something, Stephen, and there's a way of shaping this because in critical to success is bringing both of your worlds together. I think so. Finally, what's your message then for the larger group of Western is the term I heard you use it, which is why I'm using it, mm. Western SMEs, what's the message here for the opportunity and what do you want people to, what action do you want people to take? Really good question. I, th I think the, the opportunity is twofold. I think average age of our entrepreneur in Australia is 38, 39. So they don't get out of mm. high school or university with their hoodie on and uh, in their parents' garage mm. or whatever. So entrepreneurs need to go through and get their training wheels through businesses. Mm. And uh, so I think it's, first of all, take that chance. You know, the unemployment rate mm -hmm. for First Nations youth is still far higher than, than mm. non. Um, so I think it's we, we need to ensure that, that we're not seen as different. Mm. Um, and again, I, I build programs for other multicultural mm. organisations as well, first, um, first generation refugees and migrants, mm. because again, I'm, you know, I, I see myself as Australian. Mm. And uh, so I think it's provide the same opportunity you would to for, for your natural. So it comes to Thomas Herps, a farmer in Tasmania that that you know married Jane. Yeah, lovely. That's that's a nice way to put it. And I'm going to bring it back to a word that you said before, and that word was bias. And that's where I think it is as well. The 
to really understand your own cultural bias and hopefully this country is at a time right now where we're all open to doing that. And Stephen, your story is so impactful in such a multi-layered person to have this, this whole element that you can add to everything you being, bring to business in this country. And thank you very much for sharing your story and thank you for joining us on Tech Live. It's my pleasure, Steph. Thank you. Discover more about tech at tech.com.au.